And we are back. Episode three of the Sustaining Sport podcast, the podcast that looks at all the challenges facing the world of sport and how we all can help. So I was a bit slow in getting this episode out, but really I have today's topic to blame. What began as a question of mismanagement quickly became a Pandora's box of corruption, lies, and bribery. And I'm afraid to say that you and I have been complicit in this on multiple occasions. How? Well, let's see. Today's question, is there any truth to the so-called Olympic legacy of the Olympic Games? To answer this, we're going to take a bit of a journey. First, I will explain what the Olympic legacy is supposed to be. Secondly, we will look at the chronic problem of overspending. Then we will review what that means for the Olympic legacy. And finally, we can see who's actually paying the bills at the end of the day. At the center of all of this is the International Olympic Committee, or IOC. So that is where we will begin today. Spectator sport creates a unique kind of value. It evokes emotions in fans that are hard to find elsewhere. The love of the game runs deep. It's intangible, it's meaningful, and it's really enjoyable. I cannot claim to be a diehard fan of every sport at the Olympics, but there is something so special about the games as a collective. Seeing the best in their respective businesses, knowing that if they fail, they'll have to wait four more years for another chance, and thus if they succeed, it's just pure ecstasy in in human form. It also stirs up emotions of patriotism. I, for example, would probably more enjoy watching, I don't know, alpine skiing or even, even the table tennis. But you better believe I celebrated like a maniac in 2016 when Luva Manyonga pulled out a personal best in his final jump to take home the men's long jump silver medal for South Africa. Or of course, Wade Van Niekerk taking gold and the world record at the men's 400 meter finals. What a performance that was. In stark contrast, the crucial point on everyone's mind right now is that it does not seem right for this occasion of joy and success to happen in a country that stands accused of committing state-run genocide, as is the case with China ahead of Beijing 2022. Indeed, that is exactly the question that CBC News put to current longest-serving IOC member Dick Pound, whose name I have noticed regularly trends on Twitter for um, completely unrelated reasons. Just three months ago, Canadian IOC member Dick Pound was asked about boycotting the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. In response, he said that the Olympic Games are not an exercise or instrument of governments. And if the Canadian government are, quote, mad at China and for whatever the reason may be, they have all kinds of means at their disposal to show that displeasure. He went on to say that the athletes would be the real victim of a boycott when he said, You don't want to do to Canadian athletes some of the things you're basically accusing the Chinese government of doing to its citizens. Straight away, I would say stopping athletes who have trained their whole lives from going to the Olympics is horrible, but it's not genocide. But Mr. Pound persists, saying, It is counterintuitive that Canadian athletes should be the ones to pay the price for government's dissatisfaction with Chinese conduct. We do not want to give up our philosophical approach for what sport can do for the world. What philosophy is he referring to here? Well, he is talking about the philosophy of the Olympic movement and the Olympic legacy. If you have seen any advertising or statements from the IOC, they are usually peppered with such phrases. Let me give you the definitions of what they are, taken directly from the Olympics website. Blending sport with culture and education, Olympiism seeks to create a way of life based on joy found in effort, 
the educational value of good example, and the respect of universal fundamental ethical principles. The Olympic movement is a concentrated, organized, universal, and permanent action carried out under the supreme authority of the IOC, of all individuals and entities who are inspired by the values of Olympiasm. The goal of the Olympic movement is to contribute to the building of a peaceful and better world by educating the youth through sport, practice without discrimination of any kind, and in the Olympic spirit, which requires mutual understanding with a spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. The Olympic legacy includes the long-term benefits that the Olympic Games create for a host city, its people, and the Olympic movement before, during, and long after the Olympic Games. So, all of this sounds fantastic in principle. In fact, I feel it sort of overlaps for what I want this podcast to do for the world, if I may be so bold. If their philosophy were true in practice, then I think the Olympics would be a welcome addition to any city, and the IOC would be a great example of all of these wonderful values. However, if it's not true, then these are empty words being used to disguise something else. And we will find out for sure in the next segment. One of the biggest obstacles to a successful Olympic legacy would be overspending the budget. And the Olympics have a chronic overspending problem. Every Olympics since 1960 has run over budget at an average of 172% in real terms which is the highest overrun on record of any type of what they would call a mega-project. In fact, this is the only type of modern mega-project where there is not a single example of one coming in under budget. Lake Placid hosted the Games in 1980 when the Olympic budgets were decidedly more modest than uh, recent efforts. But according to Oxford researchers, those Games were 320% over budget. As Duncan Mackay of The Guardian wrote, Recent Olympics have followed a regular pattern. The granting of games is greeted with great fanfare, with the host city promising the event will be the best ever. Further down the line, though, organizers face problems, typically budgetary concerns, construction delays, political wranglings, and corruption allegations. I think he's spot on here, but what's crazy is he wrote that in December 2004. Listen to how things have gone since then. Athens 2004 was supposed to cost $3 billion US dollars. It cost 16 Turin 2006 was supposed to cost $1.4 billion. It cost $4.5. Beijing 2008 more than doubled its expected $20 billion budget, coming in at $45 billion US dollars. Vancouver 2010 was $5.6 billion over budget. London 2012 was $13 billion over budget. Rio 2016 was $6 billion over. And the real cream of the crop was Sochi in Russia in 2014. It was supposed to cost 10 billion, but instead cost in excess of 51 billion US dollars. It's actually difficult to get your mind around that kind of excess. It would be very logical to assume that the future games would follow suit and go over budget in the extreme. But that's not a very scientific approach, just assuming something will happen just because it's happened in the past. But fortunately, numerous authors have applied thorough scientific methods to answering exactly why this problem persists and will persist. Of these authors, one of the best in the business is Ben Fubierg of Oxford University, who is the most cited scholar in the world on megaprojects, which I think is a very cool claim to fame. He has long studied this disastrous overspending trend at the Olympics. His latest paper, co-authored with his colleagues Alexander Budzia and Daniel Lund, is perhaps the best explanation of why the games always go over budget. 
Using a compelling statistical analysis, the authors find that it is only a matter of time before an Olympic Games is guaranteed to break the cost overrun record. This is because, despite many claims from the IOC that spending will improve, the underlying reasons have not changed. They highlight six causal drivers that ensure that this overrun will happen, and perhaps if any of you have a background in project management, you'll have probably guessed a few of them already. Number one, irreversibility. And this certainly makes sense. Once a city is three years into preparing for a games, it is near impossible for them to pull out if something goes wrong. They will have taken out large loans, contracts will have been signed, perhaps certain elected officials ran on a campaign of delivering the games, and thus, if something does go wrong, there is basically no choice but to spend more to fix it. Similarly, there are fixed deadlines. There is absolutely no way, in normal circumstances, for one to push back the start date of an Olympics. So again, if something goes wrong that delays preparation, extra money must be spent to catch up. In the case of Tokyo 2020 that was pushed back a year due to COVID, the city must pay to maintain the facilities in the meantime. In a similar vein, there are the long-term planning horizons. The city officials apply to be a host 11 years before their games. The chosen city is announced four years later, leaving seven years to prepare. Put simply, the longer the time horizons, the more that can go wrong. Financial crises, changing political environments, demands for more modern infrastructure, pandemics. It's just impossible to plan and account for all of this, and thus the games will go over budget. Fourth is blank check syndrome, and this is so obviously problematic. For the Olympic Games, there is a legally binding obligation that the host must cover all possible cost overruns. This, of course, means that those at the IOC have no incentive to reduce cost overruns. On the contrary, they derive their profits from revenues, so they are actually incentivized to increase the specific costs that lead to higher revenues. This means bigger and bigger stadiums, more events, more ceremonies, more things to put on TV, and more places to put adverts. The host is then forced to spend more to make sure all of this infrastructure and um, fluff is in place for the games. I'm aware that the IOC do contribute a large amount of money to the games via sponsorships and and contributions. However, interestingly, a leaked document showed that if Tokyo 2020 were cancelled entirely, the IOC would be paid back nearly in full. Then fifth, there is eternal beginner syndrome. Because every games is a new host, the managers from the new city will always be complete beginners at delivering this type of project. Also, the games are always in a location that has either never had such a project or not for a long time so that the lessons learned are, you know, obsolete or forgotten. Mistakes will certainly be made. The hosts can attempt to mitigate this by hiring experienced experts, but as previous managers of the Olympic Games are rare, they don't come cheap. And a lot of these experts are part of the IOC, so they are unlikely to advise the host to spend modestly. Then sixth, and the final driver, is tight constraints on scope and quality. This is referring to event demands outlined by the IOC before they even choose a host. And I think some of them make sense. The start blocks at swimming pools, say, of course all must be to the same spec for a fair race. But the IOC's list of things that need to be built is, well, ludicrously long. On top of the 35 different sporting venues, The IOC require an Olympic village, a media production facility, a media village, a ceremonial space, a backup ceremonial space, extra hotel space up to 50,000 rooms, improved transport links, and the one that annoys me the most, 
They always want extra road lanes exclusively for IOC member use. Some of these kinds of constructions, at least in their scale, are arguably surplus to the competitive sports, but the hosts have no say on their necessity or level of extravagance. A hilarious anecdote from the IOC demands being wasteful was in Nagano in 1998. The IOC demanded improved transport links from Tokyo to the Games and more hotel rooms in Nagano. But then, the newly constructed high-speed train was so convenient, a lot of tourists chose to stay in Tokyo and the new hotels in Nagano stood empty. Andrew Zimbalist, professor of economics at Smith College, who has written numerous books on the mismanagement of the Olympics, says that the Olympics have changed from athletic events to construction events. The IOC are not at all incentivized to choose cities with pre-existing infrastructure because cost-saving potentially means less revenues, and that means less profits. Cities must go above and beyond with the project management version of champagne and caviar to stand a chance of being chosen. One of my absolute favorite cities, Chicago, shout out to the Cubs, spent $100 million US dollars to apply to be a host for 2016, and they didn't even make it through the first round of voting. And remember, the bidding process is three years, so there are the same aforementioned drivers of overspending even here. A few days before the vote, with two years and 51 weeks of work and money invested already, that desperation kicks in. This desperation led to scandal after scandal of vote buying, especially in the 1990s, culminating in a few IOC members being expelled for accepting bribes in some pretty spectacular forms. After that, there were a few new rules on how the bidding is done, but the incentives for this to happen again are all still there. So it has continued to this day. It's a systemic issue. Somewhere down the line, I actually think it might be worth another episode to look at this vote buying at the IOC because it's, it's truly wild to dive into each individual games and see the characters who benefited from the corruption and to see how they escaped without punishment. As Professor Zimbalist said, I think that the entire system is corrupt and that in order to deal with vote buying, you have to take away the power from the members of the IOC to decide who gets to host the Olympic Games. But that aside, all of this overspending, what does it mean for the Olympic legacy? And here, all I have written in my notes is go to next segment. So, here we are in the next segment, looking at what that overspending means for the Olympic legacy. The IOC claimed that, regardless of overspending in the short term, the cities are left better off with quality infrastructure and long-term increased tourism. But that is simply not true. So many of these facilities, perhaps even the majority, get abandoned soon after the Games. The 35,000-seater Pyeongchang 2018 Olympic Stadium was only used four times before being demolished. Some places simply don't have the tourism demand normally. Also, certain sports are often not popular enough in the host city for the facilities to be worth maintaining. And just general upkeep on massive venues is very expensive. If a big enough team cannot be found to take the stadium, like uh, West Ham United did for London, then that upkeep falls on the taxpayer. Even West Ham gets some public funds, as they couldn't afford it otherwise. But them taking it saved London planners some embarrassment, so they're happy to pay. On a personal note, Olympic stadiums make really bad football stadiums. 
I think it's because of the the overall shape of the athletics track, which means the fans are sat really far from the pitch. So I really hope they don't make more stadiums in the future thinking that they can use it for football afterwards. Anyway, in total for Rio 2016, 12 of the 27 venues are falling apart or haven't been used since. They have become white elephants to the state. It's bad for every host city, but worst is definitely Athens. 21 out of the 22 venues from 2004 are decaying or are at least unusable. It's worth just Googling um, Athens 2004 legacy just to see what all that construction looks like now. Dr. Robert Buddy, professor of economics at Lake Forest College, noted that legacy benefits are particularly difficult for emerging economies to capture because their cities are often remote and therefore less likely to draw regular tourists. In a sad irony, it is these same places that most need the potential boost that the Olympics promise, and this desperation leads to irresponsible excess spending in trying to win the bid. And the corruption and vote buying that went on before Rio 2016 is a perfect example of this. So a question, has any city got it right? Well, in 1984, Los Angeles were able to host the Olympics and make a decent profit. The reason? Well, the IOC lost a lot of power when the other bidder, Tehran, dropped out very late on. This meant LA had a lot more bargaining power and were able to negotiate not building lots more new infrastructure, but rather use what the city already had, which was ample. On top of that, LA was already a major tourist location thanks to the weather and Hollywood, I guess. I've never actually been to the City of Angels, but I hope the rumors about the traffic aren't true. Moving on, in terms of an infrastructure legacy, Barcelona 1992 is perhaps best case scenario. The infrastructural improvements made for those games were, to a large extent, able to be used long after the games. This was due to some good choices made by planners, but also due to Barcelona being a large tourist hub. Athens, as a similar Mediterranean destination, sought to emulate the alleged Barcelona model, but as discussed, they failed. On the downside, two other potential consequences of hosting the games were particularly prevalent in Barcelona. Namely, the commodification of culture into a form that best services tourists, and a big one, the gentrification of neighborhoods, which I will touch on in the next segment. You might think that even if infrastructure doesn't leave a positive legacy, at least the city might make a profit. As I mentioned before, LA 1984 were able to cut costs and make a profit. However, other than that, the most recent city to generate a decent profit was in 1932, which was the other time that LA hosted the Olympics. Beijing 2008 claims that it made a 150 million US dollar profit, but this return is disputed. And even if it is correct, on a 40 billion US dollar investment, I would say they should have rather just invested in Facebook or Amazon stock back in 2008. Again, the IOC are not worried about if the city is profitable because they take their share regardless. I am surely not the only one who notes the ludicrous irony that athletes in the games work their whole lives for just a couple of crucial moments, risk it all to win, and must accept if they lose. But in contrast, those that organize those same games risk nothing, and they are guaranteed to win financially. In the early 90s, the IOC took a modest 4% of revenues. But that number has been increasing such that at Rio 2016, the IOC reportedly took nearly 70%. 
This is because the IOC hold on to almost all the broadcast rights and sell them to the highest corporate bidder. And the area of the games that has seen the biggest revenue growth is, you guessed it, broadcasting. In Rome 1960, TV revenues came to 1.2 million US dollars. By Rio 2016, they were up to 2.8 billion US dollars. Meanwhile, the Rio municipality went bankrupt and started defaulting on wages to healthcare workers and teachers. Is that in line with the values of Olympiaism? The debt on the 1976 Montreal Olympic Stadium that was never properly finished took 30 years, 30 years to pay off. And no major team even plays there. Cities tend to do worse off financially for the winter games as they generate less money, but the infrastructure is more expensive. The organizers of the Lake Placid 1980 games needed a bailout from New York State. And that makes me wonder, how many taxpayers from the Bronx, say, actually were able to go and enjoy the games? If you Google the Olympic legacy, you will find a range of studies indicating the wonderful positive impacts that the games had on cities many years later. And I read a lot of these documents. One problem, though. The overwhelming number of these studies are commissioned by the IOC themselves, so can in no way be taken as unbiased. However, more rigorous academic work from reputable institutions finds that again and again, city after city, most of the jobs created by the games are temporary, and the money that cities put forward on the games could almost certainly be better used elsewhere. Dr. Buddy summarized it well when he said, I think Vancouver 2010, which is typical for the Olympic Games, overestimated the benefits from hosting and underestimated the costs. That Vancouver debt took the taxpayers four years to pay off. In short, taking on the Olympic Games in its current form is a blatant misuse of public funds. But the IOC are trying to divert attention as when this knowledge becomes widespread, no one will bid to host the Games. And the costs are not just financial. I don't want to focus too much on this because a lot of it is self-explanatory, but there is a huge amount of emissions released in the construction of brand new infrastructure every two years. And all too often, city green spaces and surrounding nature is destroyed to make space for this infrastructure. It happens at every single Games, and I will discuss some specific examples in my next Olympics episode. There is also a human cost of which land is chosen. If they are not removing nature, they need to use land that is already in use. Of course, city planners never accounted for the possibility of an Olympics in decades past. But planners for the games usually want the games to be relatively central to the hustle and bustle of the city center, but then this is where land is most scarce. This often means the removal of people from their homes, and as always, most of these are low-income residents. Some are paid out legally, but regularly, police are tasked to use force and to resort to brutality. In Rio 2016, they displaced 77,000 people. In South Korea in 1998, they forcibly moved 720,000 people. And in Beijing 2008, they forced out a ridiculous 1.5 million people. What is left after the Games is either decaying sports facilities, rendering otherwise prime real estate unusable, or the gentrification of neighborhoods, forcing low-income residents to move further and further out the city. This was acutely problematic in places like Rio, where a huge percentage of locals cannot afford the new hotels, apartments, and sports facilities, 
built for the games on the land that they used to live on. Can you imagine how angry you would be if public money taken from your tax dollars was not being used to improve the average lives of the city residents, but instead was being used to force you out of your home? Remember at the start of this episode, I said, you and I are complicit in this money-making scheme that is leaving so many people worse off. We keep tuning into the games year after year, and if we keep demanding it, they will keep supplying it. But I also think in the build-up to every games, even if you do read about illegal dealings happening, at least to me as the average fan, once the games are underway, it's too easy to get caught up in the spectacle. Regardless of how these games are organized, I think we can forgive ourselves to date for always coming back because we want to see the best athletes in their field compete at the highest level. It's so human. It's so powerful. It's so special to see how this drama unfolds. And the IOC are masters at marketing this. Even just the opening and closing ceremonies are a phenomenal display of creativity, of choreography, and of organization. But then, Realizing that the sporting value in the games is separate from those who organize them means that we can perhaps have our cake and eat it too. Indeed, perhaps the biggest flaw of the IOC is their lack of representation from athletes, fans, and local stakeholders in decision-making. Now that we have made these realizations, we can step up. As Dr. Lisa Kill of the University of Minnesota says, Internationally, there is no body to hold organizations like the IOC accountable. Until sports internationally are governed like financial institutions, it's not going to change. And she's right. The IOC have to be held accountable. How? Well, the athletes are already taking action. There is a new foundation called Global Athlete, whose founders include four former Olympians. Global Athlete are international, athlete-led, and are looking to address the balance of power between athletes and administrators. And based on what we've discussed today, this is 100% required. As we heard from Dick Pound's quotes earlier, the athletes are, in some way, held hostage. We cannot address the flaws in the IOC system via a short-term boycott without the athletes suffering the most. But there is cause for hope. There are still some options open to fans and athletes alike. But you're going to have to wait for my next Olympics episode for that discussion. Talking of the next Olympics episode, at this point, you will perhaps raise the valid question. Why on earth do cities keep applying for this when debt and misery to residents are almost guaranteed? Well, this is the question that will be our jumping off point in the next episode that will be part two of this IOC-focused piece. That episode will include a deep dive into the use of the Olympic Games for sports washing, more on the question of boycotting Beijing 2022, and what changes the IOC have made and what could be in store for the Games in the future. As for today's episode, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share it with some friends you might find it interesting. Also, keep an eye out for different kinds of episodes. I finally have some interviews in the pipeline that I'm really excited to share with you. And until then, given what day I'm recording this, may the fourth be with you. Bye for now.